0: Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth.
1: Thank you, Pete. And thank you. What an evening. It has been so incredibly encouraging to be here. Whatever blessing that may come through this message, please know that you all have blessed me deeply. As a pastor... I have long admired the work of Kai Alpha on grounds, but now as a parent, I so profoundly am grateful for the demonstration of Christ's love here. I mean, that mosh pit of affection was just so compelling, and the earnestness with which you are following Jesus and the stories of transformation, may God continue to multiply this work. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 32. And the seed of tonight's message was planted for me in high school. So um, very few high school students have a profound religious experience on a date. For me, just getting a date would have been a profound religious experience. But there I was at the the prom uh, with a date and an evening of dining and dancing ahead of me. Uh, it was enjoyable, but the profound moment, the sacred moment, was yet to come. After I dropped off my date night, we lived about an hour and a half from each other, so I had a long ride ahead of me. And uh, uh, I did everything that I could to stay awake. You know, I'd loosen up the tuxedo, turned on the tunes, rolled down the windows. But apparently it didn't work, because about 15 minutes from home, I fell asleep at the wheel, and simultaneously, my car hit an oil slick careened off the road, slammed into the guardrail, crushed like an accordion, and I woke up. And it's just like the movies. My entire life passed in front of me. I thought about family. I thought about friends. I thought about what I expected to be my future medical career, I thought about my SAT scores. I took the SATs the week before. I mean, literally, it all kind of flashed by. And then I realized, wow, in about a second, I'm going to die. In the chaos and the turmoil of that moment, I ought to have experienced, even the split second, of utter despair. But I didn't. Six months before that, at a retreat, I was invited into a relationship with Jesus. That changed my life. So the final thought that lodged itself in my mind was that, God, I am coming home. I'm coming home. And nothing could take that away from me. I felt such an utter sense of peace in the midst of that moment of chaos. The next thing I know, uh, I'm looking up through a cracked windshield, and there's a man with a baseball cap and a long white beard. And I remember thinking, I hope you're not God. <laughs> I mean, that'd be kind of disappointing, you know? <laughs> I crawled out through uh, the window, and I just had a cut on my head, and I thought, thank you, Lord. And I turned around and I looked at my mom's totaled car and I thought, Lord, I'm still coming home. (laughs) She was thrilled, I was thrilled. We were all thrilled that I actually made it out. But I think about that moment often because we all, at some point, whether dramatically or not, we will face perilous circumstances. It could be a moment of turmoil, But in that moment of turmoil, what will bring peace? In a moment in which you experience helplessness, what will bring hope? In your dark night of the soul, and we are all going to have one. And frankly, we're going to have many over the course of a lifetime. In your dark night of the soul, what will help you prevail? So we're going to look at Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob is teetering Between the promise of his calling, on the one hand, and the peril of his circumstances. So, you may recall that Jacob is the third patriarch of Israel. Through whom God is planning to bless the entire world. Salvation through this line. And about a quarter of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Jacob. Pretty important. He is so important... That when God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush at the beginning of Exodus, he introduces himself by saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I am. And then God plans to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt because he heard their groaning and he remembered the covenant he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Jacob. I mean, that is a promise of a calling. To have God name himself with you in it. But for Jacob to bear this calling worthily, a lot's got to be done in his character, in his life. Remember, he bamboozled his older brother Esau. Talk about sibling rivalry. He bamboozled his older brother Esau into giving up his birthright. And then he stole the patriarchal blessing on his father's deathbed that belonged to Esau. This is ruthless. His brother Esau bows to kill his conniving brother, so Jacob flees town. And for 20 years, he has lived in this self-imposed exile due to his scheming ways. Finally... He is on his way back to the promised land. And we get to tonight's passage at a critical juncture when his past comes crashing down around him and he can't escape it. He's about to meet his brother whom he has grievously wronged. And Esau is coming with an army. A day of reckoning. Genesis 32 verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my lord that I might find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Jacob is now caught between the immovable object of his past and the irresistible force of God's promise. And how is that possibly going to get resolved? So the landscape of Jacob's past is literally strewn with lies and conniving plans. And yet, God has declared that the world would find salvation through his line. How is this going to actually work out? I don't know when it's going to be the case, where it's going to be the case, or how it's going to be the case. But you're going to face a moment like this. When the immovable object of your past will face the irresistible force of God's promise. And you're going to wonder, how is this going to get resolved? And you're going to front, confront circumstances beyond your capacities. And it's in this, this dark night of the soul, that Jacob's response is crafted. He plans and he prays. So let's keep on with the story. In verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and your faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. But now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And he put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to a servant, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong To your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, Your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts. Went on ahead of him, but he spent the night in the camp. So Jacob concocts this brilliant plan of appeasement. And he's appealing to this ancient practice of gift-giving, of tribute. Not only the exchange of gifts in order to express friendship, but in the ancient world, gifts would be often given as tribute to a conquering king. He is saying to his brother, I give up. I submit. And so he sends tribute. Not just once, twice, but three times. Now, while this plan may be just kind of another trick of Jacob. I mean, he is a schemer. The narrative doesn't condemn him for this. Even even at the end of the passage, God doesn't tell Jacob, give up this plan. It's just another lie that you're concocting. God permits him to go ahead with this plan. The plan doesn't change, but the person does. And there's already a, a sliver of a change, a ray of light in his life. This is Jacob's first recorded prayer in the Bible. The man who has spent his life scheming finally prays. And it's actually the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. It's kind of Genesis's version of the Lord's prayer. It is the model prayer in the book of Genesis. It hits all the right accents for how you are to pray. It begins with acknowledging the history of God's work and His words. Verse nine, "O oh God of my Father Abraham, God of my Father Isaac, Lord, who said to me, "Go back to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper." Learning how to pray based on God's promises to us. And it moves on with a deep expression of humility. Of humility about himself, about God's blessing. I am unworthy of all your faithfulness and kindness. And then there's honesty. It is the real hymn that shows up. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid. It's just honest. He comes clean. I am afraid. Are our prayers specific? And then there's a tenacity. But you have said, Lord, but you have said, I'm going to take you at your word. You can never be more confident in your prayer life when you're praying God's word back to Him. Lord, you said this. I'm not just making it up. Keep your word. So how does God answer his prayer? Ultimately, in chapter 33, in the next chapter, God provides reconciliation with Esau. That's good. But before we get to that chapter, immediately in this chapter, God's answer to Jacob's prayer is a wrestling match. Because a lot of prayer is about internal work before external results. It's what needs to be done in your life. So while Jacob concocts his plan, begins a sliver of a prayer, God has his own plan in the night. And that is to put Jacob to the test, to form him. And so let's read on. Chapter 32, verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered, Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So uh, Jacob, he moves his family, his possessions onto the other side of the Jabbok. What's the problem with this plan? This actually puts his family and his possessions closer to Esau who is coming. And then he goes back to the other side of the river. Is he just a coward still, putting his family in danger and hiding behind the river himself? Possibly. But to his credit, Jacob is clearly planning to meet Esau the next day. Most likely he doesn't want his family to be crossing during the morning at the time where Esau is going to be actually coming and it would jeopardize them. So he gets them across at night. It's a sensible plan. It turns over, but why? And this is when I think the narrative gets theological on us. Because he's actually not really ready to cross over. In fact, a more literal translation of verses 23 and 24 would read this way. That night he got up and he took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the crossing of the Jabbok. That is, he took them and made them cross the stream and made his possessions cross over. Four times in two verses, he says cross. He crossed the crossing, he crossed, and then he crossed. Clearly, if you're reading the story, crossing is important. There's something about crossing the Jabbok that is really important to the story. The passage is about getting Jacob over the Jabbok, not just physically, but theologically, why? Because the Jebok, when you cross it, it's the first region of the promised land. God recognizes before he crosses over, before Jacob crosses over the promised land, he needs to be changed. He's not ready. We often think about this passage as Jacob wrestling with God, but that's not the case. Jacob doesn't start the wrestling match. God initiates it. It's not Jacob wrestling with God. It's God wrestling with Jacob. That's kind of not fair, you would think. But what's what's going on here? It's a subtle distinction, but it's absolutely important to understand this passage. Not Jacob wrestling God, God wrestling Jacob. It's understanding this passage, but it's also understanding the nature of God's work in our life. The idea of wrestling, Jacob wrestling God, kind of connotes... Something about, like, we have problems with God, we're wrestling things out with God. Jacob wrestling with God might be, you know, the thought might be, well, I have questions and I'm wrestling it with God about these questions. Doubts, angers, God, some issue with God. That's not what's happening here. It's God wrestling Jacob. It's kind of like a coach who wrestles a student, not to humiliate the student, but to train the student. That's what's going on here. God is choosing to train Jacob. And he comes in the middle of the night. For all that Jacob knows, this might be Esau sneaking into the tent in the middle of the night. The story is left with mystery. It's just shrouded. It's a dark and stormy night. God's coming in. We don't know if it's God yet. First time reading this story. Never heard it before. You would be thinking... Is this Esau sneaking in? Is this one of his soldiers rebelling against Jacob? Who who is this guy? And of course, it's only at the end of the story that you discover it's God. And this is often the case with the dark night of the soul. You just don't recognize God until after the fact. You have to walk through this, walk through all the doubts. All the questions, not knowing exactly who is this that's wrestling me. And only later do you discover, when you get to the morning, that it's been God and you have been changed. And we discover God more deeply. When the man, in verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, when Jacob saw that, or when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now, how is this possible? We know that it's God or divine messenger from God. How is it possible that God or an angelic being from God could not defeat Jacob? It doesn't make any sense unless he chose not to be able to. Because the dark night of the soul teaches not simply humility for the human, that Jacob needed to learn humility, but it teaches the humility of God. See, you know, Jacob, he was proud of being strong. We find in Genesis chapter 29, when Jacob first encounters Rachel, who would be the love of his life, he sees Rachel Uh, at a well, and there's a stone over the well that would normally take, according to Genesis 29, many shepherds to remove the stone. But what does Jacob do? He impresses by removing the stone by himself. So clearly the man is a stud. He is very proud of that. When God wrestles him to exhaustion, He is wrestling Jacob through all his natural capacities so that Jacob could finally get to the end of himself. I think God will want to wrestle you through your resume. Your resume is as perfect as you will ever get. No one puts their weaknesses on their resume for a summer job or a future job. You put all your strengths. You will never be as perfect as you are on your resume. And God is going to wrestle you through your resume so that you get to the end of yourself. And when you get to the end of yourself, you discover not only something about yourself, but you discover something about God. That God humbled himself to actually let himself be defeated by Jacob. He could not overpower Jacob. Because in the dark night of the soul, is a foreshadowing of greater revelation. A time when God himself will come in a form of a man and be defeated by men. So that through that defeat would come a victory. Sound familiar? It's the humility of the incarnation of Jesus. It's the humility of the cross of Christ. It is a humility that God will preserve for all of eternity. Think about the most glorious scene. When I will finally get to that point, and you as well, for those who are in Christ, if I were to finally get to the point where that car had crashed and I actually died, what would I have seen? What would my eternal rest have been like? I read from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals and i saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could be found to open up the scroll or even look inside and i wept and wept because no one was found to be worthy to open the scroll or look inside then one of the angels said do not weep see the lion of judah the root of David is triumph. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And if I were looking in this moment like the Apostle John at the revelation of God, what would I expect to see? How would I finish that sentence? I would probably think of the roaring lion of Judah coming in great victory, shredding the seal apart and revealing the purposes of God in the world. That's what I would have thought. The resurrected Jesus in power. That's what the world would want. How does scripture actually finish the passage? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing in the center of the throne. God forever enshrines his humiliation on our behalf. To teach us the depth of his love. We don't know what challenges are ahead, what, what lies before us, but in the darkness of our soul, there is a revelation of a God who profoundly, humbly loves us. So I, I shared a story at the beginning of um, the start, just the beginning of my college career. I'm going to share something at the end of my college career. I'd been a Christian for several years. Had the great joy of seeing uh, some dear friends become Christians. uh, Really thrilled with leading Bible studies and decided the Lord was calling me not into medicine. A noble profession, if the Lord is calling you to that, bless you, we need godly doctors in this world. Uh, But for me, the call was into ministry. And I was pumped because I entered into campus ministry and I got to meet people like you and share my faith and lead Bible studies and it was thrilling. But I have a confession to make. My first three years in campus ministry, I was profoundly depressed. Clinically so, really, though I did not know it. And I tried every possible spiritual discipline to get out of it. I fasted. New forms of scripture memory. Could I get the whole book of Romans in my head? Maybe if I shared my faith a little bit more or harder. And the joy of seeing people come to Christ? Yeah, it didn't really work. I mean, I was happy for them. But there wasn't joy. Finally, one day, I couldn't even make it to campus. I just went back to my room and lay in bed. And then, uh, it's kind of a daydream dream. I don't know what it is. But I had this dream. And in this dream, I was in a boat on the sea. And the clouds blocked the North Star, so I had no clue which direction to row. I've tried my hardest to row to what I imagined the shore would be. But finally, I just gave up. The waves were too strong. I was being tossed and driven. The next thing I know, there's a gleaming white shore, and the waves lap me upon it, and I just spill out of the boat. And I had this deep, deep sense that Jesus was there. And I was profoundly ashamed. I looked at my robes and they were tattered. I was a stinky mess. It wasn't rowing my boat ashore in hallelujahs and glories. I was just a mess. And I was ready for Christ to reject me. But in that moment, Jesus said, Well done. You got here. Come and share your master's happiness. You may be in a time of darkness, maybe even depression. You may have struggles that are private or seeking to become shared. I'm not a prophet. I'm going to make prophecy. You have either just had, are having, or will have a problem. (laughs) Guarantee it. (laughs) I don't know what your boat is like, but someday you're going to be tossed and driven. And you have no energy to get to the shore. You can't even orient yourself. And the thing that I want you to remember, the thing that God wrestles Jacob to remember, is that we have a lamb that was humiliated to teach us just how much he loves you. I'm going to invite the the band to come up. We're just going to take a couple of minutes of silent reflection that God would speak to your heart now and however the word needs to be applied, that if God is wrestling you in this moment, that you would let him do that so that you would be brought into the embrace of a God who does not wrestle you to humiliation, but he wrestles you to an embrace of love, a bear hug of love. That's our Savior. So let's take a few minutes just to prayerfully reflect. However it may be that you are limping, please know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain. O Lord, Lamb of God, the one who wrestles us unto not humiliation, but to a loving, humble affection.
0: Meet us tonight. Well, Lord, we thank you that you are the God who wrestles us to the end of ourselves so we can be embraced in your love. Lord, I pray that as some are in the dark night of the soul and some are on their way in and some are on their way out of that dark night that we would remember that you want to use it maybe only later will we recognize you may we always remember that we are embraced by a God who loves us Thank you for this message. Thank you for bringing these truths to our hearts. And we say, Lord, we we just want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to love you in return. For you have first loved us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you guys give uh, Dr. Kim a hand? Thank you so much. for the benediction tonight. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.